2: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code
0: ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
3: Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. (laughs) Hello, how are you? I'm out and about today to record the intro of episode 120. I hope you're doing well. Well, this week's guest, you'll be glad to hear, is not part of Art Billows, Art in the Age of Now, nor is he featuring in the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week. Although, we do speak about Orlando Bloom, who features in both. So today's guest... He's a comedian. He's a writer, and he's one of the most popular podcast hosts in the country. And it is, of course, Mr. Adam Buxton, Buckles himself. Now, at the start of his podcast, he does a thing called a ramble chat, where he takes his dog Rosie out for a walk and um, does the intro for his podcast. So I thought I'd do the same, although I've not got a dog. And Adam lives in the um, Norfolk countryside, and I live in a, well, I live in a London borough. Thought I'd wait for the police car to go by. So where um, (laughs) where you may hear birdsong and grass and twigs softly being crushed beneath his feet, you may well hear sirens and, um, well, (laughs) the aptly placed tin can um, as I walk along the streets. So as well as being podcast supremo, Adam Buxton is also a comedian, writer and an actor. He appeared in, which is possibly my favourite comedy, Hot Fuzz. He was also one half of the Adam and Joe show, which ran in the mid-90s to the early 2000s. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it because, uh, well, when that was out, I was in. So if all of the above wasn't reason enough to have him on the podcast, the cherry on the cake is that he studied sculpture at the Cheltenham College of Art. It was a creative experience that set the foundations for many of the projects that was to follow which includes producing several music videos including many collaborations with the band Radiohead. Now as we talk about in this episode I've been trying to get Adam on here for about 18 months. Luckily just a few weeks ago I contacted him to ask if he'd be able to do it any time soon and well luckily he said he was free. So we sat down over Zoom and recorded it. Although I should mention, which I didn't do and I normally do from the start, thank you to our Patreon supporters without whom this podcast would not be able to be produced and if you'd like to support this podcast in any small way you can do so for as little as £3 a month over on Patreon which is www.patreon forward slash Ministry of Arts or you can go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram page and you'll find a little drop down box which directs you over to the Patreon page itself So please excuse the little bit of fanboy near the start. It didn't last long, but it couldn't be helped. I was waiting so long for this episode. Um, But anyway, please come and join me and Mr. Adam Buxton.
2: Just cleaning the glasses.
3: How you been? You been okay? Yeah, not
2: too bad, thank you. How about you?
3: Yeah, all right, all right. Well, um, yeah, so thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate it.
2: Not at all. I'm sorry it's taken so long to arrange. It's like, uh, wow, it feels like two years or something.
3: <laughs> I don't know how long it's been.
2: I think it was a while, isn't it? Because I think you got in touch with me initially when I was in deep in a, my book nightmare. Yeah, that's correct. Just thinking, I am never going to finish this thing and I don't even know what it is, really. And then, you know, and occasionally I'll, I'll get invitations to do things or requests to do things and some of them are easier to bat away than others Uh, but I really wanted to do your one I thought I thought it looked really interesting Uh, I was interested you know I I like talking about this kind of thing anyway the arts and it's fun I don't get to do it enough because I guess I'm not known really as uh, a fine artist as such And also I was intrigued by your background and how you got into all this stuff and so yeah, thanks for asking me. Oh,
3: you're more than welcome. When I first got into art, when I fell in love with art, like while I was in jail, I wrote to an artist called Dougie Fields, who unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago Right. and we had to do an exercise in the art class Um, and we had to sort of um, talk about an artwork that we find in a magazine or a newspaper. And there was an article about the designer, clothes designer, Zandra Rhodes. And in the background was this little portrait or a little painting by this person, Dougie Fields. And she just mentioned her friend, artist, Dougie Fields from Earl's Court. I just sent a letter to Dougie Fields, artist, Earl's Court, London. And it got there. And he replied a couple of months later, that's what got me into writing to artists and ultimately got me to where I am today.
2: Well, I loved the fact that you had taken that approach. I thought that was pretty great. You know, I was impressed by you, impressed by the postal system.
3: I, I did have half an idea to get there because most posties, I would think, would go to their colleagues. Oh, on my route, I've got so-and-so. And, yeah, so it was, it was worth a go and it worked. So, well, Adam, I've got, I've got several, um, several questions that I ask each guest Well, the first is, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work?
2: Oh, man, that is tough. And I really hate it when that happens. And it usually happens when I'm socializing with friends of my wife or, you know, it's people like it's people who are a little bit older than I am uh, in those sort of situations when it's family situations. And they've got absolutely no clue what I do. What do you do? And I go, oh, Christ. And usually I say, oh, I'm a writer. Nowadays, I just say, I'm a writer. But then if they seem at all interested or sympathetic, then I'll try and explain what I do. And I say that, you know, I'm a comedian. I would never call myself an artist because it always seems to be too self-aggrandizing.
3: Yeah, I know what you mean. I'll be the judge of whether you're (laughs) an artist.
2: (laughs) But the truth is... That's how I think of what I do. Yeah. I, I live what David Lynch calls the art life, you know, yeah. and or at least I try to. And that's how I approach most things. And I guess most of the work I do comes out of responding to everyday life. It's yeah. It's about my life. You know, I guess this is true of most fine artists as well, isn't it? um, or most people who do anything creative, you're, you you you're responding to the world around you. But mine is very direct responses and very direct ruminations about my interactions with other people, my family, the people I love, you know, yeah. and people I come across in my life. And also the effect that cu- culture things around me has and have on my life. Yeah. You know, I'm, re- yeah. I'm a real believer that this stuff changes people. It affects you positively and negatively. And uh, I've always been really fascinated by that. And so a lot of what I do is sort of responding to that. Uh, And, you know, when me and Joe Cornish were on TV, we did this thing called the Adam and Joe show in the nineties. And that was really a set of responses to films and TV shows and adverts and music and all this stuff that you're bombarded by in the modern cultural sphere and it was us just taking the piss out of it and kind of reworking it reimagining it and so i guess that's what i do a lot of the time
3: well anything that happened between like the summer of 94 and the winter of 2001 on tv i have no idea of because i wasn't allowed one during those during those years you know is that That's when you were in prison, was it? It was, yeah. We always used to joke, me and
2: Joe, that our program was probably most enjoyed by people in prison. <laughs> uh, like people would say, who do you think watches your show? And, I was, and we were like, I don't know, people in prison? <laughs> because we thought it was like a stupid joke about, well, you know, they're so bored or they've got no other option. This is the only thing they're going to watch. Yeah. But I always assumed that in the modern uh, prison system, people did have TVs.
3: They do now. They didn't then. They, oh, was okay. just, they was just bringing it in at the end of that. And we was only allowed these little um, black and white ones that were sort of that long. It was like a shoebox, you know, and they had a screen maybe yeah. four inches square. You I know? used to have one of those. Yeah. Well, we had to sort of wire it up to a motorbike battery because there wasn't electric in the cells. Or oh, right. not plugs at least anyway. Although, so, did
2: people have did people have contraband TVs that they would watch under their sheets? Yeah,
3: well, even when I was in high security, I had we had bent screws in there, and um, we used to get them to bring in. You was allowed a, um, a what was it called? A Game Gear, like a Playboy, but uh, um, not a Playboy, <laughs> yeah, a fucking Game, Boy. Game Boy, not a Playboy. <laughs> there was plenty of Playboys in there, <laughs> but there was um, there was I can't remember what it was called, but it was like a Game Boy, but it was a yeah. different brand. And, and it had, a, like, you used to put a big cartridge in the top, but you had, you could get a TV adapter with these two, like, um, V-shaped aerials, you know, and it looked oh. like a radio, so you could attach it in, but we used to get bent screws to bring them in, and we used, to, I was like sort of rumbelows, <laughs> I'd rent out the TVs, you know, but, yeah, um, yeah that, that was only for a little while before, uh, yeah, before that, then, well, before them couple of screws got caught bringing drugs in, and... Yeah, okay. that, that ended me. Um,
2: and what did you used to watch when you were watching illicit TV?
3: It was normally only um, BBC you could get because the um, the, the signal for signal. everything else right. was yeah, everything else. And and if you was really unlucky, you'd get like BBC Two at ten o'clock when yeah. there was like you know just normal. Well, the stuff that I watch now, you know, but, but certainly no Channel Four. No, no, not not really. <laughs> but yes, you'd think they,
2: you'd think that they would have got across the whole TV situation earlier because it's a great pacification medium and it's what they, you know, they figured out fairly quickly in um, mental institutions that TV was a great way of calming down the patients.
3: Well, that's what they do now. That's the reason they've brought them in and the Xbox because it's a a character dangle because they give everyone the option of having one, but you can't just have it. You've got to earn it. You know, so... You you can have it if you fuck up and, you know, break rules and and do whatever. We'll take it off you. And everyone's seen recently that all the people that used to moan about um, how prisoners have got a pool table and TV and Xbox, when you have your liberty taken away from you and you have to stay indoors, which is tantamount to the same thing, even Mm -hmm. though you've got several rooms, a garden and, you know, 150 channels on your telly, when you're locked in... um, Yeah, none of it seems relevant, you know.
2: That's right. It's the kind of grinding predictability of the routine that is most difficult to endure.
3: Yeah, and and you could see people saying it, I feel like a prisoner. And us ex-cons who, you know, try and sort of um, make people understand that it's not all about, you know, the the luxuries that you get in there. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all sort of like, yeah, now you know um, what we've been trying to say for years, you know.
2: Yes, absolutely.
3: I don't know if you was able to to look at what I sent you, but I've done a podcast this week with an artist called Orlando Broom. I looked at her work. Yeah, it's great.
2: It is. I hadn't heard of her before. There's quite a few people you've interviewed that I haven't heard of. And oh, good. I, I really enjoyed looking at their stuff. But yes, yeah, beautiful, giant paintings, very reminiscent of... Some of my favorite David Hockney stuff I Very love much that so. you know that giant Grand Canyon yeah, thing that's yeah. in Australia, and uh, I love that that's just one of the greatest pieces, and it reminded me a bit of that one
3: the reason that I sent you um, Orlando's work or at least a link to her work um, is related to question two when was the when was your first interest in art uh well
2: hmm, <laughs> I mean I always drew. Pictures I liked drawing the same kind of stuff that a lot of children draw. Yeah. I liked, you know, robots, lots of little army men firing kind of sticky guns at each other with the yeah, yeah. uh, beep, 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 kind of going in between each other. And then after I saw Star Wars, I pretty much just drew yeah. things from Star Wars a right. lot. And then I would always draw movie posters. So I spent a lot of time drawing posters for the film alien nice. even though i hadn't yeah. seen alien i was too young to see it but i was so fascinated by the idea of it and someone had brought into school a novelization um and it was uh passed around and people would read out sections they'd read out the section of, with the chest As burster, comes. and i just couldn't get my head around this it really <laughs> preoccupied me it was so terrifying and fascinating at the same time. So I'd just draw all these posters for Alien that were completely way off, you know. And then finally I got to see it when I was a little bit older. But I'd do a lot of that. And then um, at the time I was into a lot of sci-fi stuff and I loved all the airbrush artists like uh, Roger Dean and Chris Foss. Do you know Chris Foss? Yeah, yeah. very well known. So, Chris Foss would do these amazing illustrations of uh, giant, weirdly shaped spaceships, yeah. very detailed, and uh, they were on the covers of lots of sci-fi books. Like, I hated reading when I was younger. <laughs> so, it never even occurred to me to actually buy one yeah, of these books yeah. and read it. All I used to do was go to WH Smith's and stare at the covers and think, wow, look at that spaceship. <laughs> that is fucking cool. Yeah. And I loved Chris Foss, and then um, I didn't make the connection till years later that it was Chris Foss who provided the illustrations for um, a book I did like, which was *The Joy of Sex*. Oh wow! Well, there and, you go. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone remembers that book from the
3: mid to late seventies.
2: Yeah, because I was one of those kinds of children that used to go on exploration missions when my parents were out.
3: I don't know what it, did
2: you do. You, do you find that this is true? But my children don't seem to be at all curious in the same way. Like I can hide stuff and they'll never find it.
3: No, we, but even our Christmas presents, the kids know where we put them, and they they never used to go and look because they yeah, didn't want it's to so ruin weird. Surprise,
2: weirdos. Weirdos, exactly. <laughs> I was into everything as exactly. soon as the as soon as I heard the front door click. I was pulling out drawers and climbing on top of wardrobes yeah. and looking behind things and unlocking everything I could. And it wasn't long before I found my mum's uh, large coffee table copy of The Joy of Sex. Yeah. Liked it very much. Studied it uh, yeah. very carefully. Until and... was
3: 37. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. How did you know about <laughs> But I thought uh, I loved those illustrations. You know, yeah. I didn't read the text too much. I just looked at those hippies and yeah. um, I think maybe that kind of helped to form my ideal for the kind of woman that I was attracted to. Sort of hippie woman. I like underarm hair. You had and all to that swing on a tree. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's one illustration where they're holding, they're doing a 69, but they're standing up. Like the, you know what I mean? Like they're just holding each other. One of them is holding the other one the other way around. Anyway, so Chris Foss loved Chris Foss for the spaceships and the sex, and I, I just used to buy lots of those books when I Brilliant. when I got record, uh, you know, like book tokens yeah. and stuff. I'd buy books of science fiction illustration, and and that's what I really loved and aspired to. And then when I got a bit older, actually, Channel Four was pretty good. Yeah. Channel Four launched, I think, in 1982, when I would have been 12. And they were very good in those days about having really fairly esoteric arts programs yeah. on in the in the evenings, uh, which introduced me to a lot of weird stuff. And uh, yeah, loved all that. Used to watch all that.
3: Yeah, see, I never got into anything like that when I was a child. Um, I was right. never into football, never into art. Unfortunately, I just liked getting up to mischief. And obviously... I got quite good at that. Or oh, depending on, depending on how you look at it, you know. Yeah. But um yeah, that's You that's got the... too good at it.
2: <laughs> what kind of mischief were you into?
3: Um well, it started off as the the little tear away stuff, the knock down ginger, annoying neighbors, you know. It's a uh, bit of a
2: prankster. Yeah,
3: that sort of stuff. And then we was walking across some garages once and my mate fell because it was all um asbestos roofs. My mate fell through one of the garages. Um, and like we're trying to sort of pull him out, but it wasn't a garage; it was a lockup, and someone had all of their sort of dodgy stuff in there. And like hmm. we was just passing it out through the roof. <laughs> and then that's when we realised that we could earn money from this naughty stuff that we were doing, because we was all skin. You know, we had none of us had anything between us. You know, um, and then that was it. When we started putting a value, a monetary value on the stuff, that's when it went all well, when it, it stopped being mischief and turned like crossed the border into, into Crimesville. Yeah.
2: And you were aware of that, obviously. Yeah,
3: it just made it even more naughty at the time because I was only possibly 12 or something, you know.
2: And what would have been, like, what was the jeopardy? Apart from, were you more afraid of what your parents would think or more afraid of the law?
3: Um, more afraid, oh, I wasn't afraid of the law. I mean, even at kids, we used to sort of do that thing that, that you presumed only happened on telly. You know, we'd, we'd literally knock their helmets off and get them to chase us through the, through the big multi-storey car park that we had next You'd knock the flats. cops'
2: helmets off? Yeah, yeah, just go out behind wow. them,
3: run and jump and knock the helmets, and then they'd chase us, you know.
2: That's assaulting a policeman.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, I know. But then when they caught us, they give us a fucking good idea, and it was the 80s, that's what they'd done, you know. Right, would they literally lay into you? Yeah, yeah, Even as kids, Ooh. they'd um, give us a, a good old proper slap round the face, not not just a sort of you know twist of the ear like you see in a comic, you know, and take you to your mum's. Mm-hmm. They they would give you a, a slap, and then even later on, um, when the SPG um, were about in the in the early in the early eighties, they'd mm-hmm. just come and kidnap you off the street and put you in the back of the van, and then they'd give you a good hiding. You know, three or four police in the back of a van. And throw you out at another part of your town, you know, just because yeah. they knew that you were a pain in the ass.
2: Yes, well, it was a it was a different strategy for a different time. <laughs>
3: it was, it was, yeah. Oh I've, God, I've never yeah. sort of made a big fuss about it. It was just how it was, how it was at them times, you know.
2: Yes, I remember. Uh, I talked to Benjamin Zephaniah, uh, who Brilliant. also had scrapes with mm. the law when he was younger. And he had the same sort of outlook. I mean, he certainly endured a lot of um, abuse at the hands of the police, many of whom were straightforwardly racist. Yeah. But there were also times when he tells stories about, you know, getting caught and getting kind of roughed up or mistreated. And he sort of said, well, you know,
3: it was kind of fair enough. And um, Well, it's all right, Adam, as long as they don't nick you, because it's either one or the other. Yeah. And I'd, I'd rather have a beating off of them at the time than them nick you and take you to court, whatever, which is, that was, it wasn't an unwritten anything, you know, they either give you an eye-in or nicked you, but then later on, when they started giving you an in, then nicking you, and not only nicking you, making shit up when you got into court, that's mm-hmm. when they sort of, when, when the game wasn't being played fair, you know. <laughs> yes. But um, that didn't happen too often, but it, it definitely happened a couple of times to me and, and you know during them times um yeah a lot of, a lot of my friends as well
2: mm. no I didn't I didn't get to that stage I was I was uh I was quite frightened of transgressing in that way I think even though I did have the urge and I I mean I got busted for I got busted by my dad trying to steal some chewing gum like a and I remember the mental process I must have been very young like five or something. Yeah. And I was in a shop. He was cuz I remember I remember the the view I had was of people's ankles yeah, and yeah. the lower shelves. So I must have been really small. But those are my memories. And my dad was at the counter paying for something and I saw that some Wrigley's spearmint gum had fallen from one of the lower displays and it was just lying on the shop floor. And I went through this little five-year-old process in my head like, oh, it has fallen on the floor. Well, <laughs> then I can have it because it's... Yeah, it's um Yes, uh, that's okay. It's not stealing. Um, It's on the floor. But I knew as well, beneath that, I knew that was bullshit. Yeah. But I put it in my pocket, took it home, and then my dad saw me chewing gum. Like, he didn't buy me gum. And he's like, what are you chewing? And... um he... I immediately confessed. I was like, I've, I've got this gum. It was on the floor. It's, it's, it fell on the floor. He's like, that's stealing. It's stealing. I was like, no, it's, it was on the floor. It fell off the shelf. He's like, no, that is stealing. And he burned it. He wow. put it on the... Yeah, we had like a little... <laughs> we had one of those um, fires with fake coal, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And he burned it on that. So it just <laughs> melted onto the... <laughs> melted onto the fake coal and was there for ages. And I remember all the... The foil as well, just getting just, all yeah, out.
3: black. Well, I never had my dad about, so I never had that sort of ah, right, okay. clip around the year old that I should have had. Similar to that, I remember when my mum went into a hardware shop, and I must have been, like you said, five or under. And I was sitting on the doorstep, and I've looked on the floor, and it was black and white squared tiles, like checkered tiles. And I just saw this, I can't remember, I'm thinking £20 note, but it might have been a 10 and I remember just looking at it, and every time someone come in from the back of the shop, this note would blow towards me. And mm. I remember just looking at this note crumpled up, and then someone come in again, and it blew towards me. So I just picked it up, and I remember looking about. Just as someone steps, like, coming into the shop, and I was sitting on the step, I've put my, um, I've put the, the note in my pocket. And I remember we sat on the bus on the way back, and I went to my mum. I found this, like, on the floor. And her eyes, I think we had fuck all, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, that wasn't getting thrown on the fire, that was for sure.
2: No, I mean, it's it's weird with that stuff, isn't it? Because, obviously, I've come to learn in in later in life that it's easier if you stay pretty much as straight as you possibly can. Oh, definitely. Um, but... Certainly, I had a strong impulse when I was younger to take the piss and bend the rules whenever possible. Because I just thought, well, if no one, if not, if no individual is getting hurt, I'm not stealing from a person, you know, then fine, anything yeah, goes. Yeah. And then I remember seeing, I remember seeing the film Office Space. Do you ever uh, no, see that? Oh, it's funny, man! It's really funny. Mike Judge, who does Beavis and Butt Head and King of the Hill and stuff like that, was one of his first uh, live-action features with Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston, I think. Really funny. Um, But the premise of that film is that this guy works in a soul-sucking job in some big corporation. He hates working there uh, in his little office cubicle. And one day, spoiler, he finds... Actually, it's not a massive spoiler. He finds out... He figures out that he can... um, He can kind of cream off all the tiny little percentages that the computer, like usually these financial transactions, they're a little, um, you know, decimal point percentages of this yeah, transaction. Yeah. I'm not explaining this very well. Transaction that usually get rounded up or down. Yeah. And um, so this guy figures out that if he just creams off these tiny um, percentages, he can actually make loads of money and no one will no one'll really figure it out and uh so he's thinking he's found the perfect scam and then he explains it to this girl he meets played by jennifer aniston and she's like oh right so you're stealing uh, yeah <laughs> and he goes no because it's it's like tiny tiny fractions of a percent here and there you know she's like yeah but it adds up to thousands of dollars you yeah. say and he's like yeah she's like yeah so you're stealing <laughs>
3: Yeah, but people only see it as the little bit. When I was at, at uni on my third year show, I had a piece that was it was five boxes wide and three boxes um, high, and I asked people that I knew that weren't that I knew wasn't criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew only knew a few, but um, I asked those to sort of pill for something from work for me, be it a pack of post it notes or something, and. Um, I had someone worked in a hospital. They gave me a, they brought me a hospital gown and uh, someone worked in a bank and they give me one of the pens that's stuck in on the counter, you know, with oh, the yeah, chain. okay. so I yeah. had one of those. There <laughs> was, um, um, oh, there was someone worked in a theater. No, someone went to the theater and, and got paid a pound for the binoculars, but brought me ah, the binoculars. Yeah. So I had 15 indiscriminate little things like that. But um, every time they handed me one, I took a photo of them and stamped thief across the Polaroid and then given this little sticker saying, um, "You know, just <laughs> explaining that, by law, you're a thief. And I was going, yeah. well, no, it was only a little post-it note. And I, uh, the same as what you said, I was going, no, you're a thief. And I've called yeah. the artwork, a thief is a thief is a thief. And I was going to put the Polaroid at the back of this little box that was about five inches square, which I didn't do in the end. I just put the item in there. But um, yeah, they was all panicking and getting a little bit worried. And they didn't like being called a thief. You know,
2: No, but, it's it's uncomfortable. It really made me uncomfortable watching that film, which I was really enjoying. And then that scene came along. and I was like, oh, that's like me. Yeah. That's the way I justify some of my little, you know, sneaky schemes. And it's just how easy
3: <laughs> that someone can be coerced into doing something, you know. Yeah. Just doing something illegal. Because I just asked them. And, you know, if it was, if the law looked at it, you know, I was some sort of uh, a fagin that is getting all of these um, straight, honest people, you know, and corrupting them, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: The college yeah. you went to, the, not college, the art school you went to, mm. Cheltenham?
2: Uh, I went, I ended up in Cheltenham, Cheltenham and Gloucester College of Higher Education. I right. did a years er, foundation in City Poly over in the east end opposite the old gate uh, gallery okay. and yeah it was fun i really i loved it It was the best thing that ever happened to me good. because i was being channeled down the more uh, establishment route yeah. my dad was always aspired to that establishment life himself and did a good job of working his way into that world having grown up you know, in a fairly straightforwardly working class family, but he, he always wanted to be part of the of part course. of the uh, posh set, and he did he did a really good job of of achieving that yeah. really, and he wanted that for us too. So he sent um, his children to private schools, and then the idea was that you, off you go to Oxbridge. That's the next stage. Yeah. You get into Oxbridge. You know, you pay all this money, send your child to some expensive school. And that and the schools are good at figuring out the best way to get their students into oxbridge yeah. and on it goes um but it quickly became clear that I wasn't one of those people <laughs> <laughs> that was gonna get in there and um,
3: did you want to get in there?
2: I did because I thought that would be
3: what dad wanted
2: what dad wanted and also because it's the idea of having everything mapped out for you is quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at it in a in a certain way, you know, there's a part of me always that would prefer a, a simple life where people tell me what to do and I just follow the path and yeah, I don't ask yeah. too many questions. But actually, um, it never ends up being the path that I go down, um, which I suppose is a good thing. But, yeah, I did want it. Also, I... After a while, I'd been in in uh, a public school in London, surrounded by a lot of other people who ended up going to Oxbridge and those kinds of people. And you know, I liked a lot of them. They were nice. They were, I, I met some good, fun people there. And I thought, um, I thought it would be fun to go to Oxbridge and go boating and yeah, hang out yeah. with rich people and, uh, you know, be an aesthete. And but I just wasn't really one of those people and um so it didn't happen and eventually i uh well first of all i went off to warwick university to try and study english literature because that was the next best thing okay so you didn't get into oxbridge but go and do some kind of degree at a decent university and then you to make
3: your dad's pocket um worthwhile you know and and yeah you've documented he couldn't afford it anyway but
2: Yeah, yeah. So he was, that's right. By that time he was, he was badly in debt and he couldn't help me out financially. So I ended up turning up at Warwick University and I had to drop out partly because I didn't have any money. I ended up opening all the accounts that I could back in those days. (laughs) done that as well. Yeah, yeah. Like you would get a, you'd get 200 quid free overdraft when you opened up a student account. So I opened up three which was the maximum I could open up. And I lived off that money for the first term in between going back and bartending every weekend. But then eventually combination of not having any money and not really enjoying the course at all. And going out with a woman who was planning to go to art school herself and said, why do not you just go to art school? You should apply. You know, we used to go to life classes together and that's what, That's what our relationship was based on in the first place was, um, you know, we worked together in a restaurant, but we talked about art all the time. And and, uh, she showed me her sketchbook and I showed her mine. (laughs) She was like, wow, you're really good. And I was like, so are you. And uh, so eventually she convinced me that I should just apply. And that was the best thing that ever happened.
1: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
3: That's what brings us back to the painter, Orlando Broome. She was oh, yeah. in The Year Below You.
2: No way. Yeah,
3: and she remembers your final show. Wow. And it was only a couple of days ago, because she listens to podcasts while she's painting. Yeah. Um, we was talking about um, podcasts, and she went, oh, do you listen to Adam Buxton? I went, yeah, of course. I said, funnily enough, it's just been arranged yesterday that he's, he's going to be able to come on next week. So um, she went. Oh, I was at college with him. He was a year above me, and then she she mentioned your third year show, or wow, your end of year show. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. It uh, is.
2: I I did well in the end. I got a good degree, and um, had a lot of fun. Well, what I did was I just worked really hard because it turned out that actually, I imagined that Cheltenham was going to be just this whirlwind of social engagements yeah. because I'd been to a party there when I when I was in the sixth form this guy lived in Cheltenham and he hired a coach and took us all up to to his place in Cheltenham and we had a great time and I thought oh that's what Cheltenham's like but I didn't realize <laughs> that it was an unusually big house in in the fancy part of Cheltenham that yeah. we'd been to and where I was down in Pittville was not like that no. you know it was just like a normal boring town And there wasn't that much to do. And also I'd made all my really good friends by that time. You know, people like Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux, who I met when I was at school before then, they were my big pals in London and I wanted to hang out with them. I, I wasn't really in a position to make more friends and uh, you sound so I ended so, up,
3: such a happy student.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, I wanted to.
3: I, I wanted had the to. Friends I have on one hand, I don't need. Yeah, anyone. it
2: sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I've got all the friends I need. I should be so lucky to get more friends. I did make some friends there. There were some really nice people there, but but I think what I'm trying to say is that I'd I'd made my kind of lifelong friends yeah, by that yeah. time. Do and you remember so, your installation
3: yeah. that you made for for your final show? Yeah,
2: very much. I did a thing called Space Kitchen.
3: And the thing is, I was doing
2: sculpture. And uh, I liked the sculpture degree there because you could do anything, basically. Anything you wanted. It wasn't like studying at the Slade or something where you are... Where I I would imagine that it's much more of a classical discipline and they teach you how to hack away at marble and (laughs) shit like that. We didn't didn't go anywhere near that, uh, you know, marble or stone you could just do you know you come in and say oh well i uh i'm gonna paint my um knob blue and stand in the corner and uh i'm gonna recite bob dylan lyrics and that's my piece and they'd go yeah great fine off you go Uh, tone of blue (laughs) yeah exactly now what are you saying is this eve klein blue and is that a comment on the art world um so it was good fun, but I found out quickly that actually installations was a fun thing to do, creating environments. And I always had done that when I was younger. I was one of these people who built, you know, built a lot of dens.
3: She said that's um, what it was like, but a padded one. Yeah. And she said you you had to crawl into it, and it yeah, showed right. a TV boiling an egg. Ah,
2: uh, she's confusing
3: two pieces. Oh, okay though. then.
2: Yeah there was two pieces that were that were not that different. There was because for me it was all about well I liked the idea of creating environments. I've always been into that. So like yeah. I like decorating a room and 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 uh, thinking about the lighting and the, one of the most fun parts of doing our TV show the Adam and Joe show was building the set and decorating it and putting all these tiny details in the background. And I enjoyed doing that, but I also liked making videos, like quite stupid videos, yeah. that were all that were usually funny. Um, but I thought, how do I can't just make a video and show it on a TV in a gallery? Which, of course, I could have done. Yeah. But it just occurred to me, I, I, I just, I just thought, well, I can't get away with that. I, if it's if it's going to be called sculpture, then I've got to locate it within some physical object, and I've got to. I've got to think about the way that a person experiences what I'm showing them. So it'll be another layer rather than them just staring at a TV set. I'll put this inside an environment that is already creating some feeling within the viewer. So I did a thing called Space Kitchen, which was a video, a kind of black and white video that looked like coverage of the moon landings. And it, but it was just me in my kitchen boiling an egg. Uh, but I was moving very slowly as if I was in space <laughs> around the kitchen <laughs> and doing everything really slow. And, and every now and again, I would kind of communicate with Mission Control and tell them how the Brilliant. egg boiling was going. And I tried, to, <laughs> I tried to make it sound as much like the real, you know, crackly, yeah, all yeah. this kind of stuff. And I had some Brian Eno spacey music playing underneath it and everything. And then I built this big uh, box, I suppose. But it looked a little bit like a spaceship, it ha- it, uh, like a module. It looked like a kind of 2001 space module, a bit like that uh, um, EVA module that, that goes out. And um, uh, You remember that bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 2001. Anyway, it was like a square version of one of those. And inside... It was all, the walls were covered with um, kitchen vinyl. Got you. And so it was a combination of all these uh, bits of sort of kitchen furniture and white goods and then space. Um, Because I like the idea, again, of of combining something on an epic scale, a cinematic scale. And I'd just seen 2001 around that time, was very impressed by it, with something totally mundane and everyday, which was, uh, you know, because that's what most people's lives are like. You, know, you spend a fuck of a lot of time in the kitchen, just involved with these little automatic routines. And I like the idea of kind of making them legendary somehow. But then the other piece that Orlando remembers was a, um, a it was like an igloo that I made. Yeah but the insides of it were padded like uh, an old fashioned um you know insane asylum you know like a padded room
3: yeah I, as as she said it was a padded room it, she said yeah. she thought it was padded with leather
2: yeah it was vinyl so it was it was white vinyl and i had to there was a tutor there who helped me who taught me how to um, do the upholstery. <laughs> <And that's, laughs> that took ages and ages. Oh, my God. It's quite expensive. So i just spend all the money that I made at the bar on, on all the um, materials for these things. So it was like a padded igloo, and you go down this very narrow, constrictive entrance corridor, and the door would close behind you, and it would be all dark except for the light of a projector so you'd go through the the cramped corridor and then it would open out into a slightly wider cylindrical space still quite small though and at the top of the 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 roof of the cylinder was a sheet and back projected onto the sheet was this feedback pattern tv feedback so basically if you point a, a video camera at a tv screen while the TV screen is plugged into the video camera, you get feedback. Okay. And it's a bit like the, like the, the old school Doctor Who credits. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it's that effect of just yeah, yeah, what looks yeah. like um, uh, lava or video plasma kind of rushing yeah. at you. But then I figured out over nights and nights of experimentation on my own in my flat... That if you change the aperture of the camera and the angle that you were shooting at and fiddled around with the contrast controls on the TV, you could get these amazing patterns, these these kind of uh, that looked a bit like fractals or Mandelbrot sets that would just repeat and repeat. And these intricate, very organic looking patterns would start to emerge from the feedback and they were infinitely varied so you'd you, you could th- they would just evolve over time and if you made slight slight changes to the angle that you were filming at they'd suddenly transform into another kind of pattern they were beautiful and actually we used to i i used to um put them on the tvs in the background of the set for the adam and joe show as decoration oh, cool. yeah and i used them i used them quite a bit at like parties you know if we had parties i'd i'd Project them and things like that, but they 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 look like kind of cool, trippy visuals. But they look almost like CG because they're so intricate and beautiful. And actually, I got an angry letter from someone after our show went out (laughs) on Channel Four, saying you nicked my visuals. Oh, but I I don't know, some random guy. And I was like, no, you've just you've just been doing TV feedback. I'm sure a lot of people have done it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's easy to do, and I'm sure you end up with similar things. I never saw anything that was exactly like the stuff I was doing, but I was really obsessed with that. And actually, if I oh, look nice. back, that was as close as I ever got to creating something purely fine arty. You know what I mean? That yeah, was just—it yeah. was just—it—it it was beautiful, and you could look at it for ages. And also it meant something to me because I was obsessed with this idea of I watched a lot of TV and I thought way too much about TV and how we (laughs) watch TV and all this stuff. And this idea of a feedback loop really fascinated me. And I thought that's kind of what TV is like, really. It just it just it's this it's eating itself. It's spitting out this idea of what the world is like that isn't really real. And then gradually the world outside begins to conform to that idea. And then TV hoovers it up and recycles it again. And on it goes, this long loop of how we're all, you know, more or less affected by by TV and what we watch.
3: And did you document it in any other way other than keeping the video that you used on there?
2: Uh, There is some video of it. I think on the... Extras of, uh, of the Adam and Joe DVD, there's a tiny, there's a few seconds of stuff from my degree show at art school. Oh, nice. And you can see the uh, Space Kitchen unit. And <laughs> can the, you remember its title? Yeah, that was called Space Kitchen. And the, oh, the feedback thing. Okay. feedback thing, I think it was just called feedback video piece. <laughs> I didn't have the guts to call it anything fancier. <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, I did another thing called World of Telly. It was all about TV one way or the other. And, um, you know, in museums when sometimes you go in and uh, they create, well, it's a little bit like a, um, oh, I'm, try,
3: uh, I'm trying to think of the word. <laughs> you sounded like Rosie, your dog, then, when you went, <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a word. I'm 51. I can't think
2: of the words anymore. Uh, it's you know a bit like a very basic kaleidoscope <laughs> so you create uh, you get four mirrors um, and you put them together yeah, yeah, in yeah. a big kaleidoscope thing and they taper a little bit towards the end and then you stick a screen at the end and it creates an effect like all the re- all the, the the screens get reflected and reflected but in such a way that they look like a big globe and wow. um, and so you, you look you look down this little um tube of of mirrors this little kaleidoscope and at the end of it you see this um this like a world created by whatever image you have put on the screen and so i would um make all these videos a chop up bits of um you know like i had two vhs recorders that was one of the first things i bought when I got a job, went on uh, i I got loot, the uh remember that newspaper? And um it was like eBay, (laughs) analog eBay. It
3: was
2: (laughs) and I bought a couple of secondhand VHSs and then I just would make compilations of clips from films and adverts and things like that. Very fast cuts and then I'd put a lot of music and sound effects on so people could go into this dark room and look down this tube and see this illuminated globe with all these moving images on it and all these sound effects and it was kind of this immersive way of watching tv nice. <laughs> that was cool. do you World still play
3: about 10. with it do, do you still create art in any way in, uh,
2: not in that way not in such a straightforward like now most things i do are Uh, a bit more to do with the podcast. They're more easily identifiable as, well, you're just doing a podcast. That's just a conversation. Or it's like, uh, you know, a funny video or whatever, or it sort of feeds into a live show that I'm doing or something like that, you know, a bit of comedy. But so I don't do anything just for its own sake in that way. I mean, I occasionally draw and paint. Um, and I did a lot more of that last year after my mum died. Cause she was always going on about, Oh, I wish you, I wish you would draw a bit more <laughs> Sorry, uh, emails.
3: Oh, I've just send um, you one
2: funnily enough. <clears throat> oh, there you go. That was it. Um, she was always saying, I wish you would draw you're such, so, You're so good at drawing. Why don't you draw a bit more? And I'd always say, yeah, all right, mum. Cause I'd occasionally draw her a picture yeah. for, um, birthdays and Christmas and things like that. But then after she died, I thought, yeah, I am going to draw a bit more. So I did. I, I started painting um, a bit more than I used nice. to. And I really enjoy that. And that was very therapeutic <laughs> in the weeks after she yeah. died. It really, yeah. you know, listen to an audio book and paint and draw. And I thought, wow, I have really missed doing this. And I've got to do this more. Nice.
3: Well, I, I listened to you on um, Ad Lloyd's Griefcast and you mentioned yeah. um, that um, after your mum passed, um, you said um, it was a time when art became very important and you mm. wanted to look at the way that other people, um, or, or you wanted to look at other people's perspective, the, the passing of others. Mm. Was that visual art that you was looking at or art across the, the, the board, you know?
2: I wonder what I was thinking of. I mean I'm so, I, I'm definitely interested in all that. I want to hear people's perspectives on that. I'm interested in I mean it's tricky. I think I probably said to Carrie that it's um a bit of a tightrope between uh thinking and being aware of the fact that you will die at some point yeah, and yeah. maybe And and trying to think about what that will be like and getting yourself, you know, laying the foundations for some kind of good death, whatever that means. I, in other words, realizing that you're coming to the end of your life, but not being absolutely panicky or not being full of a sense that you've wasted your life or that you have, that you're overwhelmed with regret. Yeah. Or missed opportunities. I mean, I'm sure that's that's probably inevitable to a certain degree, right? But I think that my dad was quite overwhelmed with those feelings. And I really wanted to avoid that for myself. Um, So, yeah, I like hearing people talk about that. But at the same time, you don't want to fixate on it to the exclusion of your ability to enjoy your life as it is in the present. And also, you don't want to bring other people down too much um so it's tricky that stuff you kind of have to tread carefully but i am interested in it and um as far as the art goes yeah it's just what i was saying really it's just incredibly therapeutic and calming and um and i was a little bit disappointed that i wasn't better at it that was the only thing (laughs) because i i do have a kind of competitive streak like i was a i'm not saying i wasn't able to i don't think it matters if you're any good technically at (laughs) all it's fun, whatever. Because
3: I know at moments like that, you're hypersensitive anyway, aren't you? Like with a passing or, or when there's something heavy on, on your mind that there's messages coming to you or you read messages in absolutely everything. You know, it might be a, a fucking personal advert and you're going, oh, I know what they're trying to say there. They're trying to yeah. talk about the uh, yeah the meaning of life when it's just bubbles and clean clobber, isn't it?
2: Yes, yeah, so you do get very emotional. It doesn't take much to set you off when no. you're in that state uh yeah anyway
3: you've mentioned you and joe cornish a couple of times from you know from school and what you've done afterwards and you know and your your annual podcast that you do with him now um the national portrait gallery are you aware that there's a portrait you've used to in there no
2: am i i don't think so you and joe
3: cornish um there's a Digital Portrait, taken by Honey Salvadori in 1996, and the National Portrait Gallery purchased it in 2001. I'm Googling. I was hoping you wouldn't know that. And it's called... Uh, I don't think I've written the name down here. I think Two Twats. That's what I searched. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the one... Uh, it's called Joe Cornish and Adam Buxton. I think that's all it's called. I had it written down on, on Oh, it's it's Joe sitting in the sink. Yes. yes is that the one? It is. Yeah. <laughs> and user like well, it was nineteen ninety six, so it was twenty five years ago.
2: Yeah, man. That was the first ever publicity photograph that we had taken. And uh that was I remember that um Session very well, and that was in the office in Brixton above the body shop where we made the Adam and Joe show. And that office, was in the uh, office kitchen. And th- there was another shot from that same shoot where that was back in the day when we were so excited <laughs> that we were on TV and that people wanted to take pictures of us that we would just do absolutely of course, of course. anything that they wanted us to yeah. well, and we'd think of other stuff we were like well we could do this you know i could <laughs> dangle joe out of the window uh, i could run naked through the streets yeah, what about yeah. that and one of the other ones we did was joe was in the bath uh he was naked and he was in a big bubble bath surrounded by lots of um like toy babies yeah. it was a bit it, it was a bit creepy and i was <laughs> i just put my head in the toilet and I just, um like I did a handstand on top of the toilet and then lowered myself into Brilliant. the toilet bowl.
3: And we were like, There you go, what about that? <laughs> that would do. <laughs> but I'm glad you wasn't aware that that was um, purchased by the National Portrait. is That bit you're reading there, does it say that it's purchased by them?
2: Yeah, it says copyright honey, salvadori, salvadori. National Portrait Gallery, London.
3: Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, they bought it 2001. Purchased,
2: two thousand and one. That's
3: pretty cool. right? of a photographer's collection.
2: Wow, that's amazing. Is it actually hanging up there?
3: Yeah, no. It's, it's as no, you no. walk in, it's right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: it's in the main hall. It's a hundred foot high. There's seats around it so that you can study it at leisure. Actually, it is quite good that one because it's. I remember we spent quite a lot of time decorating the walls, as well, with uh, images that were important to us: The Simpsons, and
3: Iggy Pop, and Frank Black, that's and cool, Bowie. I'm looking at it now, yeah. Hmm. And also, with your own podcast, um, you recorded one a while ago with Tim Key in the Coulthard Museum or Gallery, rather. Yes, that was that's right. Quite some time ago, and it was for it was a. A little promotional thing for the um, national art pass, wasn't it? Yeah, and it that's was right. just you and Tim wandering about the Echo End Gallery.
2: Yeah, we had a good time. I love Tim Key.
3: Well, we had, or I had, rather, um, Katie Wicks on. Um, oh yeah, I'm going to talk to Katie at some point. She's brilliant. We I had her yeah. on here about um, a month ago as we speak, um, and she said about getting Tim Key on.
2: Yeah, you should do. Yeah, yeah she,
3: yeah. she did say he's good fun and he, and he loves a tangent. So uh, he, may go, he may go off on a few.
2: Yeah, he's great. I'm just trying to see, where
3: were we? Was,
2: yeah, I think it was the Courtauld, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, do remember it at the time with he was walking around.
2: Yeah, they got some pretty... They, they, I think that gallery is it was closed for refurbishment. It's been closed for refurbishment for a long
3: time. I wonder if it's open there. It's a very posh gallery, isn't
2: it? Yeah. It's got, it's mainly, even then I was wandering around and I was thinking, wow, this is really mainly old white guys. <laughs> <laughs> Done this. So,
3: okay. A question that I do have, Adam. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, you've answered a few without me even asking the question, but if there was you and five other artists past and present, what would your ideal group show be?
2: Um, um, I think, I don't know. I guess I would have fun personalities there. Nice. And uh, I was at art school in the kind of uh, heyday of postmodernism in the early 90s. uh, Or at least the heyday of postmodernism kind of breaking through into popular culture and and, and mass awareness. And I thought it was good fun. I mean, now the legacy of postmodernism is more... Mixed, I suppose you could say, and controversial. But in those days, what it meant to me was just taking, mixing high and low, or there being no division between high art and low yeah. art and traditional ideas of of, of what uh, those two things meant. So I thought that was kind of exciting. And I liked the idea that a lot of those so-called postmodern artists were appropriating images from the cultural sphere and from tv and yeah. advertising and all those things which you know people like andy warhol had done in the 60s i guess but this was the logical very modern extension of it and i loved all that stuff so i really liked jeff coons yeah um even though you know he was controversial very much at the time and still is i suppose because there was such a big element of um Business, what seemed to be quite cynical business about it and uh, making money off it and having a factory where you are cynically producing these rather antiseptic pieces of art yeah. that were little little ideas or jokes almost about art and then making millions and millions of dollars off them. Yeah, it
3: was and, almost as if he's got a business that makes art rather than he's an artist that... Makes money from his art.
2: Yeah. But then you could say that about a lot of people. You could say that about Damien Hurst. And I course. think the idea that that's what Damien Hurst is like a sort of cynical manipulator, yeah. I think that idea persists. And I don't really believe that it's the truth of him. And nor do I. Like I was listening the other day to your episode with Annika Rice, and she was talking about the fact that Damien Hurst had been very philanthropic and kind to. Oh, it was wasn't it? Even one of the Rolling Stones, who Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Wood. Yeah, it was Ronnie Wood, and he was in a bad place, uh, drinking too much, and and Damien Hurst kind of intervened and uh, turned his life around a little bit yeah. by providing him with kind of art therapy in a way. Yeah. And I thought that was really an, a nice, interesting insight and a different side to someone like Damien Hirst, um, who would also probably be pretty good to have a, a group show oh, with. No. But anyway, um, Jeff Coons I think would be fun. He's a fascinating character, and 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 some of his really good pieces. You know the 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 kind of stainless steel love bunny. Him. Yeah, love him. I, no one had ever really done anything no. like that before.
3: The inflatables. And,
2: yeah, the inflatables yeah. that of course were not inflatable, but they were made out of uh, rigid material, yeah. stainless like steel, Tux, whatever it was. bag. Yeah, a lot. Gavin Turk was another one who I thought was pretty great. Um, so I would have Jeff. I would have, uh, I would have, oh, I know who I would have because I saw a documentary about her. I didn't even know who she was. Yayoi Kusuma, Kusama. Um, like she is one of the best selling painters in the world. I think she's Japanese.
3: I, I might know if I see her work.
2: Yeah, but I didn't know anything about her. But it really was. Uh, I, th- there's a great documentary called "Kusuma Infinity" that came out in 2018, I think. And it's a revelation. It's like, oh, I didn't know anything about her. She's it's one of the most that, successful it? artists in the world.
3: How cool is? I love it when that happens. Yeah,
2: and I mean, a, a lot of her story, and and actually, part of the reason why you. Don't know about her. Is that is that she was a very straightforward uh, victim? That's not really the right word. It's too strong. But you know, it, it's sexism basically, yeah. and that the kind of art she made and the fact that she was a woman and the fact that she was Japanese just meant that she didn't make any of the lists and she wasn't taken seriously. You know, yeah. but actually, her work is a, is extraordinary. So she also she struggled with mental illness throughout a lot of her life and it's a really interesting story um and her stuff is great so i would have her yayoi and oh, uh
3: yes of course i do yeah i do i do very yeah. much so
2: yeah did you google her
3: i did just as you was talking there i didn't remember the name but her work is yeah it's legendary it's a little the bit it's it, it,
2: on, that's right it's a little bit like the kind of bridget riley yeah um optical illusion stuff, yeah. but um,
3: I went to a show um just before lockdown okay, yeah,
2: she's amazing, and uh david Hockney I'd have to have there he is just he's just great in every conceivable way as a person as someone who can talk about art I'd in a love him on here. fascinating articulate way. I know he's on my wish list for the podcast and I'll pass him on to
3: you if I get him. <laughs> yeah, go on. Put a good word in, please.
2: But like everything he's done in his life and and the Brilliant. fact that you know early on in the lockdown as well there was a report on the news um where they had like how's David Hockney responding to the lockdown. God knows how they managed to get this interview with him, but there he was doing the stuff on his iPad. Brilliant. And like those iPad drawings are amazing. They are. they are. And it was so inspiring and surprising that he had managed to take this medium, which seems so antithetical to fine art in so many ways, because the problem with a lot of modern technology is that too much is done for you. And so it kind of rules out a lot of the important things that go into making yeah. an interesting piece of art. Because too many of those choices have been replaced by an overabundance of uh, handy little plugins yeah, that yeah. make you look, you know, that enable you to pass as an artist, yeah. even if you don't really have that I use loads of
3: them myself. Yeah,
2: of course. Same here, you know. And um, but he had figure out he, he, he just you know it was just amazing to see what some it was like okay that's what it means to be talented you can apply your talents to any medium and you'll end up with something magical yeah. there was there was a thing he did on the ipad with of just rivulets of rain on a on a window look it up yes. and it is just great it's like oh my god it almost looks like something a child might have done yeah. but then you realize that it's it's sort of surreally brilliant. Yeah. Um. I'd have Jean Michel Basquiat. Of another course, massive. Yeah. I'm going for the heavy yeah, hitters. You've
3: got it. Why not?
2: Uh. He seems like he would have been amazing. That, that's. I like that film about him that Bowie was in. Bowie yeah, played yeah. Andy Warhol. And I do love his stuff. I love that. You know, I'm aware that it's become kind of a cliche. His sort of stuff, and it prefigured a lot of movements in art that maybe I don't like so much, a kind of over-reliance on this faux, naive, childish yeah. way of doing things that is too easy. It, you know, it looks a little bit like an indie album cover too yeah. often.
3: Well, a lot of the time they're into, they're they're the response to something that's happening in that moment. And sometimes the responses just don't weather well in time, don't they?
2: Yeah, or the, I don't know, the style, because it's right on a knife edge between being, just a bit crap and childish, yeah. and then being something else, and as,
3: as, which is what they said about Matisse.
2: But Basquiat was so clearly in the in on the good side yeah. of the line, yeah. <laughs> and just did it over and over again, and it was so great. And there's and also there's great video of him actually at work. I like yeah. those things you can see on YouTube of there's that amazing footage of Picasso painting on the back of that sheet of That's glass. It. The bowl. Wow, I think that's thrilling. That stuff, and 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 seeing Basquiat doing some of those big canvases, that's pretty wild. So he'd be there. I think Tracy Emin, even though I'm not absolutely in love with a lot of her work, I think her whole approach, the way that she fuses her life experiences with the work that she's making. I really appreciate it. And I think it's really interesting.
3: Yeah, she's and one she's of the few sort of walking works of art, isn't she? You know, she is, right. she's her own canvas pretty much, isn't she, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm glad that she's doing well. She was ill for a while. Yeah. Um, so who's, I think that's four. Uh, and then I think I would have, one of my heroes was a uh, Japanese artist. I think he's Japanese, I hope. namjun Pike. I don't know. Or Paik um uh, the, the 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 godfather of video art and he made the kind of work that i aspired to make at, at college a lot of uh big sculptural pieces using big piles stacks of tvs and so he yeah he found i kind of found out when i started making my bits and pieces of work like my tutors said oh you there's this guy that you should check out because he did all this stuff way before you It
3: sort of gives some sort of um gravitas to your own idea then when you realize that someone else is doing similar you go i'm not fucking balmy for having this idea you know yeah
2: and also you you just it's enjoyable to see their perspective on it and how they did it and obviously uh, uh most of his stuff was um I'm going to stick my neck out and say better than mine. Um. <laughs> or at least on
3: par. Yeah. He never had a, 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 a leveret tunnel, did he? A leveret no, igloo.
2: <laughs> I don't think so. What he did have was he had this one piece where he put a big magnet next to a TV screen, an old tube TV screen, you know. None of you uh lcd yeah, flat screen yeah. nonsense for <laughs> them and june Valves and, and everything. yeah but the the uh the magnet distorts the picture in a really fun way so he was just doing all this stuff that was playing around with the visual image and the way that the visual image is conveyed to people in the modern world yeah. and the, the, the dominant way when he was doing stuff was tv i guess so yeah, I loved all that. I'd love to talk to him and ask him some questions.
3: Well Warhol and Basquiat are the two most popular for that question. Yeah, and they yeah they appear a lot.:
2: I mean, Warhol would be fun. I think Basquiat, even though he was clearly a troubled soul, I think that he just seemed like someone I would maybe want to talk to a little bit more than Warhol, even though Warhol's amazing and fascinating in so many ways. Uh, I think he was—he just seemed a little bit too slippery. <laughs>
3: yeah, there was you know something I mean? about him.
2: Uh, he, there was no way that you're going to get close to that guy. Where yeah. I think, uh, I think maybe Basquiat was more of a kind of uh, more vulnerable. He
3: maybe. got shot for a reason. <laughs> 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 I um, didn't say that. <laughs> I mean, Tr- Tracy Emin. you mentioned Tracy Emin there. I've yes. mentioned it quite a few times on here. She's the one who got me back into art, because I'd stopped right, okay. making art for several years. Once my son came along, I, I started an MA, couldn't afford it, and my child, you know, so obviously I had to jog the MA on. Um, and I just ignored art for about six, seven years, because it was a bit hurting for me you know i couldn't do it i I threw a little tantrum you know and then i went to a a talk that tracy emin was giving and i I know tracy i see her across the room and i sort of give her a little wave and she's she's come over and we have started chatting and she said i've not seen you around for years like you know where you been i said oh i had a baby and i give this noble story about going out to um to work you know i couldn't afford a studio and You know, expecting her to go, oh, good on you. And she went, you're not making art anymore. She went, (laughs) art made you. Art turned your fucking life around. And you're ignoring it. You should have more respect for art. In the end, I was going, okay, I'll make art.
2: Yeah, there's always a way, isn't there? There's always a way of leaving your stamp and just screwing around with things in in order to express yourself. Uh, But yeah, she's right.
3: Truth be known, I didn't want to because I'd thrown a tantrum. I couldn't. Be an artist, so I didn't want anything to do with it. That's that was. The... What?
2: Why did you feel you couldn't be an artist? Because there wasn't the time, or you didn't feel you were good enough?
3: No, I didn't have the time. I didn't have the money, and I didn't have the space. And oh, because okay. I wanted to create big art, I didn't want to right. create little bits.
2: You had a fixed idea of exactly. what an artist yeah. does, okay. and
3: I wanted to be a Tracy Emin, a, a Damien Hirst, a Gavin Turk. You know? Yeah. And I weren't going to do that on a fucking a4 bit of paper in my sure. mind and i wasted several years of me arty life as it were you know because yeah, yeah i mean now that's pretty much what i'm doing now anyway you know
2: it's never wasted though because all that stuff you know those experiences feed into what you do and uh i don't think you should be too hard on yourself but i think tracy emin is right and I understand, though, how you were feeling about like, no, an artist, you need the big apartment, the yeah. loft and the big canvases <laughs> and the paint. And, uh, you know, that that's the dream. Well, um, I mentioned David Lynch before. And there's a great documentary about David Lynch called The Art Life that came out five years ago or something. Oh, yeah. Really recommend that. Um, it is him talking not so much about his films, but more about just how he approaches creativity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he paints a great deal and makes a lot of sculpture and it is great to immerse yourself in his way of looking at the world and the way that he does his art. But it is also, you know, a, a portrait of someone who is, reached the stage in his life where he's got a very nice setup thank you very much he's quite he has the privilege of being able to do what he wants he gets (laughs)
1: he's
3: very dismissive hasn't he i suppose
2: he's absolutely earned it but you know not everybody has the wherewithal or the time or the freedom to commit themselves full-time to the art life (laughs) but luckily david has and he's very and he's totally unapologetic. Good. He's not one of like these that. yeah, he's not sort of going, "Well, I know, you know, not everyone is so lucky. I know I'm very privileged, but uh but you know, he's like, "Yeah, this is what I do." And uh and he goes, "Some people say I should be going to see my kid's ball game. Well, <laughs> fuck that. I can't think of anything more boring than watching my kid playing football." He's only five. He's no good at it. I'm gonna, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's that, that's essentially what he's saying. He's not he's not one of these people who's torturing himself like, oh, I wasn't there enough for the kids. He's like, no, that's fucking boring. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure he's nice to his children in other ways, and I'm sure he's there. He for says them what in, most
3: yeah. of us think quite often. Yeah,
2: and uh, I mean, you. I can't remember if you get much of a perspective from his partner <laughs> on, <laughs> on how she feels about all that. But uh, one would hope that they've come to some sort of arrangement. Yeah. And he, so he's living the dream of the art life really. there.
3: Well, I'm aware that I've asked you all my questions now. Um, oh, one of which is, if you wasn't within the arts, what would you like to be? That was the last question.
2: Uh, do, 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 do. Well, I think I've said in the past that I would. I, I would be a bartender nice uh i was a bartender for a long time from about the age of 18 uh, and it got me right the way through college and supported me and I, I i liked it and met loads of interesting people that i wouldn't otherwise have met it's great catering you know it, it, it's a real melting pot um and uh i loved it and brilliant I miss it still, and I I think I would like to set up a bar. But even then, you know, I would be approaching it from a kind of creative angle, I think, because the fun of it would be decorating it, creating an environment that's fun to be in, fun for people to go and drink in. And, uh, you know, I'd I'd be into doing the playlists and um, curating the the whole experience of it. And your wife would be on that
3: journey with you, would she? (laughs)
2: She'd certainly be into the... Uh, she, she'd be happy to drink.
3: Oh, good on her. Well done. <laughs> well done to her. Um, what have you got coming up, Adam? I know it's a bit of a hard question to ask anyone at these moment in time.
2: Yeah, no, that's okay. I mean, I don't know. I sort of drift along. I don't really plan things at all. So I, I am, in the short term, I'm supposed to be doing some shows... Nice. Um, that were rescheduled from last year of me going around. I was supposed to be going and doing book tour shows because I wrote this book, Ramble Book, and actually that's just come out in paperback. So now it's the the book tour is now supporting the paperback rather than the original (laughs) hardback. But I'm going out and... So I guess I'll read a little bit from my book and and read new things that I've written and talk to the audience and maybe sing some songs. So I'm looking forward to that. And... At some point, I'm supposed to do some music for a record. Brilliant. Um, and that's taking a long time.
3: Ah, oh, well, yeah. Um, things happen, don't they? Yeah. Um, and where can people find you? I know you're not on social media anymore. But, um, I'm not. Where can they see what you're doing on the website? Uh, yeah. I mean, my main uh, I, the main
2: reason I'm not on social media is because I feel like, well, I'm, I've got a podcast, so... Yeah. The 49th
3: best podcast in the country. <laughs> that was fucking brilliant. 49th? That really tickled me. I was going around the roundabout at the time and I nearly crashed when you, when you uh, when replied. I laughed at your reply to that before it was highlighted that you... Uh, yeah. Uh,
2: for people listening who don't know what the reference is, Joe teased me on the Christmas podcast last year because I'd done an interview promoting my book with uh, Nahal Arthanaika on... <laughs> was it? Sports, LBC, Five, five Live. live? Five yeah, live. Five Live. And uh Nihal had said, Oh, you know, you you do this podcast, it's it's uh really successful. I think it's the forty-ninth most popular <laughs> podcast in the UK and I just immediately said actually for for a while I was silent because I was sort of thinking to myself, Hang on, which chart is he going off here? Because I know that I've been high I'm usually higher in the charts than that. But do I actually want to say that? Because it makes me sound so Um, (laughs) self-involved. But then he mentioned it again. And I went, 49th? (laughs) Like trying to make a joke out of the fact that I was outraged by this relatively low place. And of course, it's not. I should be so lucky to be the 49th. That's amazing, considering how many podcasts there are. But it was a funny insight into my vanity, I suppose. And Joe, uh, of course, immediately picked up on it and teased me about it quite a bit on the podcast uh, it
3: was good it, it did tickle me it tickled me a lot yeah good um <laughs> yeah so well thank you very much for your um for your time adam i really not at appreciate all appreciate it
2: no it's really nice to meet you and thanks for asking and um
3: and uh hope to no worries mate you and, and thank you in person one day
2: yeah look forward to it cheers
3: gary Brilliant. Cheers, all right adam. man bye bye all the bye. best great weekend Thank you so don't Well, how about that, Adam Paxton? He's not an easy man to get on your podcast, you know. I (laughs) I think him being told he was ranked at number 49 might have done it. He wanted to come on here to push him up the charts a little bit. I reckon appearing on the Ministry of Arts podcast has got to push him up into the 20s at least, right? Well, I'm hoping this little bit of ramble chat is a bit quieter than the last. There's a little lake on the estate where I live. It's still next to the main road, which I'm sure you can hear. And as I think I mentioned in the intro, and we definitely mentioned in the podcast itself, it was a long time coming recording this podcast, but it was well worth the wait, right? And if there's anyone you'd like me to try and get on, just drop me a line. As long as they're within the arts, it doesn't matter if it's not visual. So that's about it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening. I look forward to being with you next week. Hello, how are you? I'm out and about today in homage. Fucking hell! In homage to this week's guest. Fucking hell! He made himself known. Like I say every week, on whichever platform you listen to this podcast, you should be able to leave a comment. If you could do that, that really does help us get noticed, and anyone else looking for an art podcast. If you've got any queries, drop us a line on social media. At Ministry of Arts org. If you're enjoying these episodes, spread the word of the Ministry of Arts podcast. And those of you that are, thanks for listening, and until next week, ta da.